Well, welcome everybody to to uh, the Observatory Studies. And to this uh, I'm very pleased to welcome our <laughs> Shiv Dasani fellow for this term, um, Professor Philip Nandu, who's at the um, Federal University of um, I had it a, a moment ago. Juiz uh, de Pala. Juiz de Pala. I had my correct pronunciation for that. And where he's the di director of the of a of a centre for the study of religion and philosophies, and his interests are in comparative philosophy, particularly in, in um, the study of uh, uh, Buddhist philosophy. And he's published on Nagarjuna, and he's also published on comparative philosophy. And uh, I'll read out a couple of titles of his um, of his works: a comment on uh, commentary on Nagarjuna's Two Truths doctrine, 2014. This just last year. Um, and he's published in, uh, in um, I won't torture, torture your ears with my Portuguese pronunciation, but he's published on the Shabda Pramana in uh, Mahayana Buddhism um, <coughs> and Advaita Vedanta. And also a topic which I'm particularly interested in and, and uh, one of our research students is here, Ritual in the Vedic Tradition, Openness, Plurality and Theology and Teleology. And also, what is philosophy after all? The intertwined destinies of Greek philosophy and Indian Upanishadic thinking. And he's written on poetry and soteriology in India, the devotional lyricism of Jai Davis Gita Govinda. And he's also written on Bartra Harry's non-dual linguistic ontology and semantics of Atmanapada. And is currently engaged in preparing the first direct translation into Portuguese of the main Sanskrit Upanishads. So I'm very pleased that he's able to be here with us this term, and he's going to present to us today the first of his Shivdasani lectures on textual authority and soteriological reading in Advaita Vedanta. Well, thank you very much for your introduction. Uh, I've planned here my paper for around 40 minutes. I think it's, it's okay. So if I go beyond that, you can just warn me. Uh, I would like to thank Professor Flood and Oxford for uh, inviting me to take residence as Chief Dasani Fellow. And uh, in fact, I'm returning here three years after coming for the first time and meeting Professor Gaving for the first time. I gave a lecture and we started an academic interaction between my uh, Department of Religious Studies in Brazil and uh, the Center of Hindu Studies. And one uh, step in that process is that we released the very recently, just now, in fact, we are still going to have a, a kind of a release function of Professor Flood's introduction to Hinduism in Brazil. We are now starting an undergraduate course on religious studies. Traditionally, our department is of and uh, field PhD, but now we are starting an undergraduate course in religious studies, and Professor Flood's book will be extremely important since we don't have much translation not to speak about Sanskrit translation, but also of contemporary authors in Portuguese about uh, Hinduism in general. This bring me brings me to the first point I would like to make. That I am standing here today not just as a devoted reader of Indian philosophy and religion, but also as someone who necessarily instills into the reflexive exercise a perspective and a viewpoint from Brazil and Latin America. Though of Indian origin, in particular of an Hindu Vaishnava background, I grew up in Brazil, and as a consequence, there is an explicit Brazilian ethos at work, both at the personal as well as academic levels, 
in the process of looking at things in general and in your religions and philosophies in particular. It's interesting to know that in the Western world, one tends to look at Latin America as a cultural offshoot of Europe, making it a natural part of the so-called Western world. I think this is a great mistake. The influence of non-European matrices and a distinct historical dynamics that covers both pre- and post-European colonial domination periods brought into Latin America, particularly at the deepest levels of its cultural manifestations, a natural immunity, which I call symbolically to the Cartesian Illuminist rationality. The consequent absence in Latin America of systematic oriental studies of Said's type should not therefore be construed as something negative. For some years I've been conducting research on the intellectual exchanges between Brazil and India, particularly during the 19th and the first half of the 20th century. It's amazing to know that notwithstanding their dependence on sometimes defective European translations and interpretations, particularly Schopenhauer's equivocal nihilistic readings, Brazilian intellectuals, both fictional writers as well as speculative thinkers, show the remarkable capacity to undertake their own appropriations, which invariably involve a conscious dismissal of European Orientalist, what they call versions, and an unexpected closeness to Indian original projects. This extraordinary phenomena, intimately linked to the above-mentioned inverted common immunity to Cartesian Illuminism, is anchored in three main existential assumptions that bring unexpectedly together what I call two faces of the Orient, the South Indian Orient and the Far Western Orient. Firstly, there is a marked stress on the, I call it Nietzschean positive, disworldliness, and more specifically on disworldly soteriologies, here and now. Second, the fundamental mysteries of life are lying in the depths of this world, one's world of experience, rather than in any other projected world. And thirdly, the means to plunge into the depths of this magic world involves fundamentally an extraordinary instrumentalization of reason, much beyond the definitional and descriptive role it plays in one's primary experience. It's, I would say, a strategic or imaginative reasoning committed to expand the, narrows, the narrow confinement of one's uh, uh, and or the ego's limited understanding of the world. In other words, more than just otherworldly divine interventions, the soteriological project involves a Nietzschean, a Quixotean type of superhuman imaginative reasoning, to quote Mexican writer Carlos Fuentes and the poet uh, Octavio Paz. Those assumptions have greatly influenced, consciously or otherwise, my own investigations into the soteriological traditions of India. I'm referring here to Moksha, specifically and more specific to the traditions of the Upanishads. This brings me to the main point of the lecture today. Well-known authors from Radhakrishna onwards, I quote Matilal, Mohanty, Netta, Abfaz, Ingalls, Ganeri, among many others, have already highlighted the long-lasting tradition of logic, epistemologic, and rational analysis in India, generally subsumed by the words Tarka and Nyaya. They have exhaustively stressed the fact that not only soteriological goals, but also moral and mundane scientific discourses, so I'm including Dharma, Tama, and Artha, 
have also equally uh, been enhanced by a tradition of rigorous rational procedures suiting the canons of Nyaya Shastra. However, the need to affirm an Indian commitment to rational inquiry in similar terms to those of Western tradition, in which case a modern notion of rationality springs as a defining criteria, has perhaps been responsible for a tendency to entrust reasoning with an indirect and preparatory role in soteriological matters. Accordingly, Tarka has been largely understood as subservient factor to textual authority, that is Shruti, or to ultimate experience, that is Anubhava. It's the objective of this lecture to make a case for an enhanced role of Tarka in the specific context of the Upanishads, as understood in Advaita Vedanta. So I'm specifically looking at the perspective of Advaita Vedanta, and more specifically of Shankaracharya's Keval Advaita Vedanta. I will sustain that Tarka virtually coincides with Shruti and constitutes the most immediate means of liberation. For that, one has to open itself for an extraordinary meaning of Tarka, akin to meditative thinking of Heidegger, as a form of rationality that goes beyond mere inferential procedures, anumana or nyaya, in the stricter sense. On the other hand, the meaning of the two other imbricated notions, Shruti and Anubhava, are also bound to be re-evaluated. I'm not suggesting with this that one has to necessarily find different words to translate those terms, but that one is bound to dig into deeper layers of meaning of these words, usually translated as reason, tarka, shruti, traditional authority, and anubhava experience, so as to realize their contextual implications. To start with, I should note that modern readings of those terms have been subliminally shaped by a Christian religious model, which itself is a result of a gradual process of crystallization of meanings. Experience and Ubhava would evoke a sort of mystical encounter with God as a materialization of the later soteriological grace. Textual authority, Shruti, would invoke the idea of a textual revelation of God as an ontological objective principle and reasoning would invoke a, theologi a theological discourse that lends argumentative reasons for the existence and nature of that divine principle as descriptively revealed in the textual sacred authority. Well, it's quite an impossible task to frame the Upanishads as per the Advaita interpretation within this set of evoked meanings. Experience as a realization of the ever-present Brahma does not constitute a new, distinct, and extraordinary objective experience, but an awareness of the profound implication of one's mundane experience. Further, the radical inobjectifiability of Brahma, due to its ever-present condition rather to any uh, inaccessible remoteness, implies that Shruti or the Upanishads do not involve, neither need to do, any positive revelation of Brahma's existence and nature. And further again, for the reason just stated, the impossibility of the Upanishads to be construed as a positive revelation of an ontotheological entity, Tarka cannot have any real theological function to play. What finally helps one to understand Shankara's sense of Shruti 
are his reiterated statements about the way in which the Upanishads systematically operates as a direct means to solely eliminate ignorance, since nothing else remains to be done once that is accomplished. This systematic procedure, elsewhere described as Kalpita Upaya, very significative expression, sometimes translated as imaginative or hypothetical means, Kalpita Upaya, defining the role of the Upanishads, constitutes a method of systematic reflection, vichara, made up of three basic disciplines, Shravana, Manana, and Idhyasana, and known to tradition under the designative expression of Adhyaropa Apavada. In his commentary to the Bhagavad Gita, Shankaracharya states, the knowers of tradition state that that by which is by nature inexpressible becomes expressible, toptable, through a Dhyoropa Apavada method. And modern Adventine commentator, a major influence in my reading of the Upanishads, Sachidanandendra Saraswati, sums up the operationality of a Dhyoropa Apavada as a method through which he says, imaginary characteristics are first attributed to Atma, Adhyaropa, thus serving as a negation of whatever is incompatible with them. Then later, even the falsely attributed characteristics are negated, Apavada. Therefore, different from any positive revelation, the Upanishads, the Shabda Pramana or Shruti of Advaita Vedanta, constitutes essentially a method of soteriological thinking where descriptive or doctrinal instances, such as the concept of Brahma, secondary and both secondary and primary definitions, Atma, superimposition of Dhyasa, and the ultimate known difference between the first two, means Advaita, are understood as soteriological devices, refractory to substantialist leanings aiming at the realization of the ever-inexpressible and ever-present Brahma Vastu. This idea is superbly expressed in Aitreya Upanishad Basha, where Shankara retells the story traditionally told by the knowers of Brahma. A man, having committed a sin, was told by someone, you are no man. Believing in such a statement, he approached another man and asked, who am I? Understanding the ignorance that had taken possession of this man, the other man decided to instruct him by means of a gradual process. He showed him that he was not emotionless things, and so on. Then he concluded, you are not a known man, thus remaining in silence. To emphasize the limits of the teachings up to this stage, Shankara adds, how can he who does not realize being a man when told you are not a known man, understand himself to be a man even when told you are a man. Having identified reflexive thinking, vichara, operationally known therefore as Adhyaropa Apavada, as the essential dimension of Shruti, there are subundant reasons spread over the overall commentarial tradition from Shankaracharya to contemporary Sachidanandendra Saraswati to sustain that such reflexive thinking constitute on its own right an extraordinary form of Tarka, understood as the most precious gifts of the Upanishads. Modern critics have pointed out some of the meanings of the word Tarka used by Shankaracharya in connection with, it, uh, with his understanding of the status of Upanishad language. 
I'm thinking about Murti, Verma, Hacker, Bruckner, Werther, Omphaz. They stress, or their stress has been basically given to the meanings proscribed by Shankara for the soteriological enterprise, for instance, Turka as an humano. And those accepted, in which the case, in which case Turka is understood as an indirect preparatory task to liberation. But it's interesting that it's only in Wabfa's essay, Vedic Revelation in Advaita Vedanta of 1983, that we find an explicit identification of Shruti or the Upanishads with an extraordinary form of Turka, and therefore as a direct means of liberation. In other words, here Shruti is and teaches an extraordinary soteriological Turka. Shankaracharya's admissible postulation of the Upanishadic method as an extraordinary form of reasoning is enshrined in four of his major works. In the Brahma Sutra Bhashya, Shankara describes Upanishadic reasoning as Shruti Anugrahita Tarka, literally reasoning granted by the Upanishads, and terms it the immediate means of liberation, Anubhavanga. The second is the Brihadaranyaka Upanishad Bhashya, where an entire section is designated as Upapati Pradhana, Upapati being synonymous to Tarka Yukti, which are the three most common terms used by Shankara to designate reasoning. The third is the commentary on the Mandukya Upanishad in Godapada's commentary, where he uses the expression Shastra Yukti. And finally, in Upadesha Sahasri, Shankara resorts exhaustively to Anveya Vyatireka argumentative structure as a major feature of the Adhyaropa Apavada method, as we'll see later. At this point, I feel it imperative to explore in greater detail the sense in which Shruti may be considered an extraordinary form of Turka, or to put in a different way, what distinguishes ordinary Turka from the extraordinary Turka that constitutes Shruti? And why should we stick to the word Turka to describe both the cases? <laughs> the extreme care taken by Shankara to distinguish acceptable and unacceptable forms of reasoning, which amounts in some instances, I acknowledge, to deliberately oppose Turka and Shruti, seem to be driven by the need to reject Anumana or ordinary reasoning, as a form of shushka tarka, in the specific context of Brahma Vidya, and at the same time point to a superior dimension of reflexive reasoning that amply depends on well-defined requisites. Ordinary reason is based on one's primary belief in substantive otherness. That's how I translate the word dvaita instead of media yeah, dualism, but substantive otherness. So again, ordinary reason is based on one's primary belief in substantive otherness, Dvaita, the fundamental error to be eradicated for those aiming at the knowledge of Brahman. Ordinary Turka is propositional assertive, descriptive, and representational, and it suits as a prerequisite knowledge the subjective desires to acquire all sorts of objects. It is productive, therefore, of a knowledge that prompts a subjective action. As it takes for granted substantive otherness and consequently one's self-assumed egocentric identity, it demands solely technical expertise 
rather than self-transformational requisites. Conversely, the extraordinary Turk enjoyed by the Upanishads is meant to eliminate the error of substantive otherness and is productive of a knowledge that is instead suspensory of any possibility of further subjective interested action. It's basically a deconstructive reasoning that seeks to eliminate systematically the fundamental error of substantive otherness and its various manifestations, constitutive as they are of as many misconceptions about Atma. Different from propositional negations, all you have here are eliminations of errors rather than negations of empirical realities or of realities. So different, obviously, from what we call the negative ways in classical tradition of Mimansa, Nyaya, Paryudasa and Pratisheda. So we are not talking about propositional negations which involve uh, the, the, the presumption of the existence of empirical realities, but elimination of errors. The ultimate realization of the oneness of reality, that is, a transformed being who overcomes suffering, follows necessarily the eliminative razor of reasoning, and therefore the soteriological path is free from any assertive instances of ontological conceptualization. Thus, while adhering to the general principles of logic, the extraordinary Turk of the Upanishads conforms itself as an extraordinary application of those principles, I'm talking about the principle of identity of the third excluded and others, so conforming to those principles, it uh, uh, conforms to an instrumental discourse of pure and a typical deconstructive character that is meant to shaken the ego centrality of the ignorant subject. As a consequence, its usage requires as an indispensable element the orientation of someone that went beyond the fundamental ignorance. In other words, a Nugrahita Turka or a Dhyaropa Pavada Turka imply a dialogical pedagogy involving masters and disciples, duly entitled as per the prescribed requisites. For the master, he should be a Strutian and a Brahmanista, and for the Shishya, uh, the four uh, disciplines, Chatu Sadhana. So it's a Turka which presumes biology, presumes teaching, and presumes the necessity, therefore, of fulfillment of requisites. It's not spontaneously given. That's precisely then what Shruti ultimately means, a highly sophisticated and elaborate Tarka understood as a pedagogy of tradition. Therefore, far from any dogmatic doctrinal authority, the Upanishads are the name for an efficient epistemological event of self-transformation. Sachidanandendra Saraswati says, it has been pointed out how the Upanishads do not derive their authority as a means of knowledge solely from the fact of their being included among the texts of the Vedas. They derive their authority from their power to lead to a direct experience of the self, arising from the cancellation of all play of the empirical means of knowledge with their objects. Two words have been widely used by Shankaracharya to account for the pedagogical instrumentality of uh, the Europa Pavada. 
upaya as a general term for strategy. So I use that expression in the Brugge Aranyaku Upanishads of Kalpita Upaya to define the nature of the Upanishads. Upaya as a general term for strategy and Yukti as a specific term for rational strategy. So Yukti, which is sometimes taken as a general synonymous to Tarka, uh, as an adjective to Upaya would therefore give a sense of a rational strategy. Now, before turning our attention to the nitty-gritties of Avyarupa Pavadas, the main and foremost soteriological yukti, that is, as a direct and immediate means of liberation, it's important to mention two ancillary and preparatory rational yuktis resorted to by Shankaracharya in helping one to introduce himself to the core issues of the Upanishads. So the first is Mimansa Tarka, or exegetical reasoning. It involves the application of traditional Mimansaka textual exegetical rules in order to ascertain the Upanishads' purportful centrality of Brahma and Atma. Obviously, this is an internal uh, controversy within the school of uh, Mimansa, Uttara, and uh, Purva Mimansa with regard to uh, the nature of the Upanishads as being or as having a certain purportful distinctiveness in comparison to the uh, Brahmanas. So it is required to use the same exegetical rules of the Mimansakas to show that the Upanishads have a different centrality of the Brahmanas, which is therefore Brahman and Atma, and Adhyaropa Pavada as a method which is being revealed, and their teleological specificity moksha, vis-à-vis yeah, -vis, therefore the Brahmanas and their ritual orientation in the context of an organic totality of the Vedas. Again, emphasizing that Shankara, in my opinion, is not a critic of ritual, no, but tries to contextualize, let us say, an organic relationship between two dimensions or two degrees or two levels of uh, gradually approaching self-realization. By analogy with the ritual section and its centrality of textual injunctions, exegetical reasoning seeks to show that context, the textual centrality of seemingly injunctive sentence, such as the Bruhadaranyaka Upanishad's exhortation for one to hear, reflect, and meditate on Atma, and more specifically on the so-called great sentence of the Upanishads. So Shankara is going to show that just like in the case of the Brahmanas, yeah, the uh, exegetical discourse is going to show that all the text is meant for injunctions for the ritual in the case of the Upanishads as if they were injunctions you know, there is a kind of call for reflection <coughs> enshrined in the Brahadaryaka Upanishad statement of one should hear, reflect and meditate Shravana, Manana and Nididhyasana on Atma and that is done specifically through the uh, reflection on the great sentences of the Upanishads, the Mahavakyas. The second ancillary rational yukti is mainly meant to persuade outsiders or to strengthen their faith, the faith of Vedantin neophytes, and it is known as a viroda tarka, that is reasoning not contradicting the Upanishads. It consists of a set of um, positive rational arguments proving the plausibility of Upanishadic propositions as if they were doctrinal theories. 
is just to persuade one to come to the Upanishads. So let us take Brahma as a doctrinal theory just like any other representational doctrine of an ultimate reality. So these two exegetical discourse and this what we may call uh, 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 proofs uh, to vindicate or to confirm the reality of Brahma are introductory ways of coming to the basic point, which is to bring one to the discourse of the Upanishads as the real uh, uh, source of one's reflexive thinking. Sachidanandendra Saraswati warns us of the absolute necessity of distinguishing Mimansa Tarka and Naviroda Tarka from Anugrahita Tarka or Adhyaropapavada. The former two are meant and are subservient to the third. The former two are yukti resorted to and devised by the commentators. So Mimansa Tarka, Viroda Tarka are resorted by the commentators like Shankar and others. Whereas the third, <coughs> Adhyarupa Pavada, is the ultimate yukti enjoyed by the Upanishads themselves. So we are coming uh, with reasonings for the reasoning, which is to follow the thinking proposed, presented, offered by the Upanishads. Considering all that has been said so far, Adhyarupa Pavada emerges as the Upanishadic method par excellence, <coughs> the method of elimination of the different manifestations of the fundamental error of what I call substantive otherness, Vaita, and consequently the direct means for the realization of oneness of the non-difference between Atma and Brahma. <coughs> the reason as to why the oneness of Atma and Brahma becomes manifested as the substantive otherness is this manifold world is declared by the as this manifold world is declared by the Upanishads to be avidya. This being so, Atma, Brahma and Avidya constitute three fundamental limit concepts, or perhaps better, soteriological concepts, that is, special instruments of the matter. <coughs> the first two words, indicative of oneness, are those around which the whole method revolves, to ensure that they are able to fulfill the double task of distinguishing themselves from every other word or object of the world, and functioning as pointers to the sole ontological substratum on which the unsubstantiality of the world rests, <coughs> the method should not allow them to ever be conceptually reified. The concept of avidya, on the other hand, being suggestive of the cause of one's existential condition of suffering and self-alienation, should equally be refractory to any form of reification. In fact, Saraswati is emphatic about the fact that being by definition a mere error, a false concept, mitya pratyaya, an absence of discrimination, aviveka, or an illegitimate superimposition, adhyasa, any form of ontological objectification of avidya would seriously threaten the oneness of reality and render its elimination an impossible task. He quotes Shankara's passages that point to the futility of any search for the ontological origins of avidya. In the Brahma Sutra Basha, when asked to whom finally belongs this ignorance, Shankara answers, we say that it is you, yourself, who asks thus. In other instances, Shankara simply states that avidya is without beginning, and therefore no objective cause of it should be looked for. The method of Adhyaropa Pavada constitutes a kind of linguistic game, 
where each and every sentence of the Upanishads is epistemologically relevant, not on account of what it intrinsically refers to, but on account of what it implicitly negates. This constitutes, as Saraswati emphasizes, the purposeful character of the Upanishads as a unique linguistic dealing, where words bearing conventional meanings are forced to convey unconventional, in what it called transworldly, and more precisely, eliminative or apavadic ones. This being so, more than an outright rejection, rejection of empirical reasoning, the Upanishads resort to the same reasoning to undertake the reversal way, the deconstruction of quotidian metaphysical fantasies. If mundane usage of logic deals with positive and substantial entities, the Upanishadic usage goes the reversal way. Instead of a subversion of logic, it's a logic of deconstruction, whose efficacy lies precisely in its being as rigorous and accurate as any constructive dynamics. Eliminative accuracy is here synonymous to topical efficacy, since it targets not mere theoretical constructions, but instead constitutive construction, subjectively revealed and marked by suffering. As such, the eliminative character of a Dhyarupa Pavada method does not coincide, as I've already mentioned above, with propositional negation. Both positive and negative propositions, which are seen mundanely to depend on substantive otherness, can be instrumentalized in an eliminative way. That's precisely the uniqueness of the Upanishad's reasoning. More than just a judgment, it implies the usage of language as an act of resolution, as an act of decision. Let's see closely how that happens. Following the split contents of part one and part two of Sureshwara's Neishkarmiya Siddhi, Satchidanandendra Saraswati points respectively to the two basic stages of a Dhyarupa Pavada method. First, in the first, the meaning of the two fundamental soteriological concepts, Brahma and Atma, are ascertained separately. This is called Padartha Shodhana, or the purification of meanings. Brahma, or Tat, as objectiveness in general, pervasiveness, oneness, and especially Atma, or Aham, or Tvam, as subjectiveness in general. Here, the emphasis is on consciousness. And in the second and ultimate stage, so two stages, the first, the individual or separate analysis of the two terms, Atma on the one hand and Brahma on the other. And the second and ultimate stage, two terms, are placed in synthetic opposition, Samana Dikarana, as in the sentence, the great sentence, the Mahavakya, so as to promote definitely the realization of their fundamental non-difference. This is called the Mahavakya Ukti, or Mahavakya Shravana, or Mahavakya Manana. We'll see afterwards why these words are interchangeable. Now, says Saraswati, the method employed throughout all the classical Upanishads, though one in a sense, assumes many different forms. The many different forms are as much instances or applications of the method suiting the removal of particular, of particular modes of ignorance. Still, some later commentators, and especially modern orientalists, have reduced the complexity of Sureshwara's posture to a duality of faculty usages. They used to say that 
the first stage, evaluation of Atma on the one hand and Brahma on the other hand, would constitute a rational, analytical, discriminative event. And the second, it means the Mahavakya Zukti, the, the pronunciation, enunciation of the sentence of oneness, would constitute an experiential, synthetic, mystical event, a sort of positive novelty, a magic jump into the ocean of Brahma. Saraswati outrightly rejects those charges by reiterating that the discriminative, eliminative rational process is present throughout, both in the first stage, wherein Adhyarupa Pavada assumes the specific form of Anveya Vyatireka, as well as in the ultimate stage, where Adhyarupa Pavada assumes the form of Mahavakya Shravana or Mahavakya Yukti, Ukti. In his opinion, Adhyarupa Pavada is not a method to interpret or even to understand the Upanishads, but instead the Upanishads themselves, understood as a superior form of reasoning and as a means to enable man to overcome suffering and realize their nature. <coughs> as regards the ascertainment of the meaning of Brahma, uh, we could mention, among others, the following applications of the method. The method of cause and effect relationship, Karya Karana, the method of the universal and particular relationship, Samanya Vishesha, the method of the Lord and the souls, Jiveshvara Vibhaga, the method of creation, Shristi, and the method of Brahma with qualities and without qualities, Saguna and Nirguna. As regards the ascertainment of the meaning of Atma, besides the five applications mentioned above, we should also mention among the others the following, the method of the five sheets, Panchakosha, the method of the three states of Astatreya, the method of the seer and the seen, Drishta Adrishya. The topical application or current combination of those modalities of the method enable one's understanding of each of the terms separately, opens the way for the ultimate stage to emerge and succeed. The mutual and final purification of meaning that takes place when the two concepts, Brahma or Tat, on the one hand, and Atma, Ham or Tvam on the other, are placed in syntactic, syntactic opposition in the hearing or uttering of the sentences of oneness. This mutual purification of meanings is finally conducive to the realization of non-duality. I will refer below to some examples given by Saraswati from Shankaracharya's works of how to recognize the functioning of the soteriological argument in different modalities of the method. First sentence about creation are helpful in denying the idea of an independent existence of the world from Brahma. From the Upanishadic perspective, they are not meant to actually describe the origin of the world, but only to suggest the sole reality of the cause. Accordingly, the creationist suggestion is subsequently denied. Second, fundamental negative definitions of Brahma, such as the so-called Swarupa Lakshana, knowledge, truth and infinite, and partless, actionless, motionless, faultless, untainted, are relevant as long they are they help us to negate worldly attributes and as such to point to or indicate something above and beyond, but they are not resorted to from their intrinsic point of view. Glossing with the well-known passage of the Upanishads, Brahman is spoken of as unknown to those who know it well. Shankaracharya is unambiguous about the fact that Brahma is indicated but not denoted by the Upanishadic words. It is proved that Brahma is indescribable and that unlike the construction of the expression a blue lotus, Brahma is not to be construed as the import of any 
sentence. Avakyar Tattvam. Third, texts which appear to posit Brahma's the experience of the three different states of Astatreya, awakening, dream and deep sleep, are peculiarly instructive. For example, the identification of Atma as an experiencer of dream state is helpful in removing the idea that the subject is subservient to the objects, or in other words, that the latter are as an ontological and independent existence apart from the former, as it is seen to occur in worldly dealings of a waking state on account of the intercourse between subject and object through sense contact. Say Shankaracharya, the topic of dream was introduced for revealing the self-effulgence of the witness self as a distinct fact. This is done because in the waking state we have the existence of the contact between the objects and the senses and an admixture of the light of the sun, etc., so that the self-effulgence of the the self-effulgence of the self cannot be distinguished from them. But the idea that the dream state as itself any type of ontological status is subsequently denied by Shankaracharya by interesting the Upanishad words describing it as a pure metaphorical sense, Nimitta Matra. In the words of Saraswati, waking and dream, and the worlds of waking and dream are never perceived in the absence of self as conscious, consciousness. From this it follows that the states are unreal and that the self is real and of sovereign omnipotence. Fourth, example, the word Atma is identified and subsequently distinguished in succession with each of the five familiar ego sheets the so-called Panchakosha, Anna, Prana, Manas, Vijnana, Ananda. Further ahead, Shankaracharya is inequivocal while rejecting any denotative dimension of the word Atma, and yet he preserves it as an indispensable pointer to the self, as an instrument for error illumination. The opponent says, I'm quoting here, is not even the self denoted by the word self? And Shankara replies, no. The word Atma which is primarily used in the world of duality to denote the individual soul as distinct from the body it possesses, is here resorted to in order to indicate the entity that remains after the rejection of the body and other selves, which ultimately can never be referred to by any form of domination, of denomination. The word Atma is used here to reveal what is really inexpressible by words. Avacha. In short, the elimination of erroneous attributes instead of skeptical statements constitutes basically a mechanism that prescribes objective or objectifying cognoscibility as a way to resolve the existential dilemma. Considering that retractions can only be accomplished with deliberate superimpositions, means we only reject propositions with another proposition, the complete removal of each and every natural or erroneous superimpositions demands a limit situation where the instrument of deliberate superimposition is itself simultaneously eliminated by the erroneous attribute being eliminated. That's precisely what happens in the ultimate stage of the process, Mahavakya Shravana, in the final discriminative analytical procedure, the hearing of the sentences of oneness where the synthetic opposition between the concepts of Atma and Brahma takes place. Uh, I'm not going to repeat here the most important Mahavakis. In his explanation, Saraswati resorts extensively to the teachings of Suracharya, with special emphasis on two works, 
Leishkar Nesidi and Manna Solasa. The first is a detailed development of the verse section of Shankaracharya Upadesha Sarasri. Most of Saraswati's remarks are recorded in his commentary on Leishkar Nesidita titled Klesha Paharini. As if reflecting closely an actual dialogical situation of soteriological pedagogy, the sense of Tattvam Asi, wherein Tat stands for Brahm and Tvam for Atma, has given traditionally a certain prominence. On Sureshwaracharya's fundamental hermeneutics, the intrinsic and inescapable meaning of the word Tat, as ascertained during the first stage, implies a unity, totality, characterized by mediateness or remoteness is a unity far away, paroksha, he says. That is something not directly experienced. While the intrinsic and inescapable meaning of the word tuam, as equally ascertained during the first stage, implies direct experience, freed from the identification of the I or the mind, aham, mamma, and yet characterized by indeterminated sorrowfulness, sansarin, or a state of being in bondage, limited sorrowful consciousness. Now these attributes are incompatible with one another. Thus when placed in syntactical opposition, connected by the verbal form is, the only possible result is their mutual exclusion. Since they are constitutive of the denotative character of the words, that and tuam, their mutual negation can leave no room for a remaining denotation in either terms. In other words, tuam as tuam, and that as that in the sentences are definitively eliminated. This means that not only the functionality of each term, but also the combined functionality of the sentence is purely negative. They are equivalent terms in a peculiar epistemological sense. Their nature possesses equal potency and an equal destructive power. In this way only, the indirectness of oneness Brahma, and the directness of sorrow, Tuam, are related. This being so, the verbal form is does not act as a declaration of identity as in conventional usage, but as a declaration of non-difference, involving extraordinarily an absolute and simultaneous double negation of the terms and their attributes. This mutual elimination constitutes in the words of Sureshwaracharya in his the negation of negation. That is a negation that eliminates the very instruments of negation. Perhaps the most inequivocal statement about the eliminative character of the ultimate stage of Mahavakya, Shravana, comes in Dupadesha Sahasri, when Shankaracharya details its modus, its modus operandi in the following terms. Thus, both of them in conjunction express the same meaning as implied by the sentence not this, neither that, niti, niti. Again, in the commentary on the Shandogya Upanishad, it states, the conclusion arrived at in this sentence, you are that, tatvam asi, is a remover of the identification of the self in the individual soul involved in change and unreality. Thus, the understanding of sentence like the Tvamasi, subsumed by the very principles of Adhyaropa Pavada, constitutes in Saraswati's view the very nature of the Upanishads. Notwithstanding these, later commentators have sought shelter in conventional theories of meaning. Among these, the recourse to secondary meaning of the words 
Lakshana as her priority and considerable dissimulation. According to it, when the two terms Tat and Tuam are placed in syntactical opposition, a part of their intrinsic meaning is mutually eliminated or abandoned, leaving a remainder a meaning of meaning, which is identical in both the terms. The sentence thus presents a positive unitarian meaning, actually denotative by implication of the entity concerned. According to Saraswati, this position contrasts sharply with the idea of non-difference, to be realized by means of the absolute mutual negation of the meanings of the two terms, Bada. It instead suggests an ultimate identity between them. We know that in logical terms, ultimate identities between two things are contradictory. In the words of Karl Potter, Padma Pada, which is the one who proposes these ideas of remaining uh, meanings in the two uh, terms, as a kind of identity of the terms. Potter comments, Padma Pada's approach is to emphasize the positive entity between Jiva and Atma. Thus the function of Tatvamasi for Padma Pada is not merely the removal of error or ignorance, as it seems to have been for Shankar and Sureshwar, but it actually propounds a declaration of identity between a reflection and its prototype. This theory presents three major problems. First, it is regards the Upanishadic principle according to which Brahma is never denoted nor requires such a denotation by any word or sentence. Second, it is regards the linguistic principle according to which an entity which can never be denoted through primary meaning, Mukya Artha, can never be either be known through a secondary one, Lakshana, Guna Artha. Third, while evoking the teachings of Sureshwaracharya in its support, it mistakes the word Lakshana, abundantly used by the later and also by Shankaracharya for the word Lakshana, which actually and technically means secondary meaning. Consequently, the ultimate identity between Jiva and Atma proposed by later commentators constitutes a deformed result of a teaching in which an inflated A, in secondary or whatever other sense it may be intended, thinks itself to be the absolute. Coming to the end, in which sense finally does the expression Tatuomasi prompts the realization of Atma? In a strict negative sense as above discussed, and following the eliminative principles of Adhyarupa Pavada and Niti Niti. In Sureshwaracharya and Shankaracharya, the word Lakshana, not Lakshana, instead of primary meaning or secondary meaning, stands for a, an indicative meaning, Suchaka. That is a meaning that is over and above any word or sentence, avatya, and at the same time stands as a support of them all, ashreya, adhisthana. In other words, the word tuam is indicative of atma not because it assumes any type of secondary sense when in opposition with tat, but because it is completely sublated by the later, and vice versa, simultaneously. Sublation, bada is the peculiar nature of the Upanishadic indication, which instead of destroying Tuam or Tat, there being not a thing, but erroneous I-ness and otherness respectively, totally reinvests them with a higher meaning. That's what Shankara points at when he says that Tuam and Tat deliver by indication a special meaning, resulting from the knowledge of Brahma and Atma. <coughs> they no longer express any other meaning contrary to it, even if, taken separately, their linguistic denotations remain. In other words, 
indication is an act of total sacrifice of Tuam and Tat. And it unveils Atma Brahma as a substantive ground, Ashreya, that in ignorance appears Ines, Tuam and otherness, Tat. Discarded Ines and otherness, the I and the other find an ontological reconciliation in Atma Brahma. This purely eliminative function of indicative words within the sentence of oneness as to simultaneous events of a Dhyarupa Pavada is summed up by Sureshwaracharya by resorting to the well-known analogy of snake rope, that is, the mistaken illusionary awareness of a snake in a place where actually stands a rope. He says, even as the snake indicates the rope, the ego tuam is the indicator of the inner self. The import of the sentence is grasped by a sublation of the ego. The self, on the other hand, is capable of being so indicated that it is to me a sublation because it is the substratum of the ego. So it's, it's a kind of a, 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 a reverse usal of the era to point out to the truth. It means that wherever there is an era, there is a truth which sustains the possibility of the era. So it's just to make use of it to unveil what is the substratum of its possibility of appearance. In short, sentence of oneness instead of sentence of identity should be classified as sentence of double simultaneous negation. The hermeneutical event they lead to, Vakya Bodha, more than just a meaning in traditional linguistic terms, constitutes a meta-linguistic realization. From the sentence emerges the meaning beyond the sentence. That is a quotation of the Shankaracharya. From the sentence emerges a meaning beyond the sentence. In other words, says Saraswati, Adhyarupa Pavado Netiniti is also explained as a text which has the form of a negation, but it is actually not a negation. Underneath the formal negation lies a positive teaching, the affirmation of reality. The removal of the fundamental superimposition, which is nothing but a superimposition of ideas, not of objects. Ideas, the word which is said here is Gnana Dhyasa. So the superimposition is not of Arta Dhyasa, it's Gnana Dhyasa. Gnana here in the sense of cognition, not in the sense of, in, in the soteriological sense. Opens the way for all-encompassing oneness of reality, always intact and complete, Siddha, to shine forth as ever. As amply discussed above, the Upanishad soteriological undertaking strengthens those dispositions by bringing its various procedures under the centrality of the cutting edge of Viveka, the discriminative substance of Vichara, meditative thinking, and its modus operandi, the Adhiropa Apavada method. It contemplates three major disciplines, Shravana, as enjoyed by the Brihadaryaka Upanishad, Manana, and Nididhyasana. Sometimes translated as hearing, pondering, and meditating. And, uh, the wisdom of this translation is to be discussed, it's open, following the statements of this Upanishad. Despite later commentators and modern orientalist speculative digressions as to what differentiates them, Saraswati stresses they are all variants of the same fundamental Upanishadic thinking, Adhyaropa Pavada. Following the Upanishadic statement that commits them all with the realization of Atma, he quotes Shankara in his support. Right knowledge of the Absolute only as the sole reality only dawns with when these three disciplines are fused into one and not otherwise. In any case, pondering must be carried out by reasoning in according with the Vedas, and meditation must be performed on what was reasoned in according to the Vedas. 
end of quotation. Shankar refutes, therefore, the idea that Shravana, Man, and Gidhyasana can be distinguished textually and operationally in the context of the Upanishad teaching, as many of the later commentators and Orientalists have made. The three disciplines should therefore be solely distinguished in regard to the intervenient pedagogical factors. For instance, Shravana is the teaching of the Master. Manana is a reflection of the seeker in accordance with the Master's orientation. And Nididhyasana is a reiteration and further existential assimilation of those teachings. Finally, we should note that the status of the instructional language, the conceptualized knowledge of non-duality, Advaita Jnana, the thinking of Advaita, theory of Advaita in Vodhikoma, of the Upanishads is equally unsubstantial as any other phenomenal entity. Even the sentences of oneness, Mahavakyas, such as Tatvamasi, though leading to immediate liberation, are ultimately unsubstantial because they are language and as such products of ignorance. Still, says Shankara, this does not amount to any absurdity because one can be liberated by hearing a falsehood just like a terrifying open uh, quotation, black man with black teeth. Black teeth, if uh, seen in a dream, causes the death of the dreamer. In other words, true death is indicated by false dream itself. End of quotation. A process of instruction by means of something which is ultimately unsubstantial is designated by Shankaracharya as, I mentioned already in the beginning, a device of imagination, Kalpita Upaya. The difference between this and other mental modifications, manuvrti, consists only in the fact that the Upanishadic device is the one by means of which the root of erroneous mental modifications, that is the cognitions of all such different such agents, instruments, actions and results, is completely destroyed. For this reason, the Upanishads are called the last means of knowledge, antyapramana. This closely follows the statement of the Upanishads, which declare their own vacuity for liberated men. That, in Moksha, says the Brihadaita Upanishad, the Vedas are no more the Vedas. In short, the epistemological relevance of the Upanishads lies fundamentally in its pedagogical method. While empirical judgments imply the ascertainment of a particular entity by means of separating it from all other things, an instructional sentence aims at restoring the additional unity of all things in Atma Brahman by pointing to the locus of a manifestation of the fundamental era, Avidya. In other words, a judgment in the propositional sense is a disjunctive result, while an instruction is a conjunctive, all-inclusive result of the same or a similar analytical process of reasoning. That is precisely what Adhyarupa Pavada stands for as the modus operandi of the Upanishadic method of, I call it, systematic insane, or systematic negation. It's not this, it's not that. Neti neti. Thank you. Thank you very much. We'll carry on to quarter past, so we'll, we'll have uh, some time for discussion and questions. I'm glad to have heard this lecture or talk. 
was the first time I've heard somebody actually say that uh, there have always been a lot of comments that Eastern philosophy is not a philosophy. You're the first one who's shown that you can't superimpose Western method of looking at reality to the Eastern method, which includes not only looking at reality as perceived by the Indriyas, but also deconstructing them as something real. Uh, and it was nice to hear uh, that too. And forgive me for saying this, I think some of the problems that come from misunderstanding enlightenment is because when you look at it solely for academic reasons, which is not what it was meant for, Upanishads actually are trying to do, which may be very different in their process, logic, so-called logical process, which is it's, on, it's a recursive process. The same question is asked and repeated, and an answer is given and it's repeated, an answer is given and it's repeated, in other words, you approach it in different ways, and it's just a different method of doing things. And it's just nice to hear it all. I haven't got any questions, but it was nice to hear. <coughs> Elsewhere, I think the paper that the doctor has mentioned in the beginning was philosophy after all. Uh, I was thinking that sometimes we we start trying to press, let us say, by what is called Western rationality to show that India also has similar uh, modalities of rationality. But we should not forget also to preserve what is in fact to a certain extent unique in Indian tradition as far as rationality is concerned. Not merely because, I mean, in that sense we are just... Uh, emphasizing the uniqueness of our civilization, but perhaps, and more important, to reawaken in the Western tradition itself modalities which the tradition in the West also uh, coexisted with and had. So we can reopen our eyes to look at similar processes which were described here in the Upanishads, in the Greek tradition, for example. Mm. So this soteriological attitude or commitment of reasoning is not something absolutely new in the West, mm. but it is somewhat kept apart. So to look at this uniqueness of reasoning in Indian tradition today, uh, till today at least, the tradition remains till today, could function as a kind of uh, catharsis for the Western to rediscover certain aspects of itself. I think that's also as equally important. <coughs> but what's, what's your understanding of reasoning? Because, uh, okay, I understand that, uh, if, if, if I understood well your, your I would say simple thesis is that we have Upanishads, Shruti according to tradition, and uh, uh, this, upa the, uh, this Shruti is at the same time uh, Tarka, Yukti, or there are passages that we could talk, uh, they, they are Tarka or Yukti, uh, they are um, philosophical reasoning or uh, how we call it. Why I understand the, the, the goal of the later commentators to show that there is no clash between Shruti on the one side and and Tarka Yukti on, on the other side. Uh, that, that's clear, but the, the, these commentators came, let's say, uh, more than 1,000 years later than, than after, after the uh, old Upanishads. Uh, but uh, 
still, uh, I, I, I'm not convinced by, by the argument that the, that the, uh, the passages, uh, like uh, if we, for example, if we, if we define Atman is this, Brahma is this, and then we make the second step, uh, make some Mahavakya, that such, uh, such, such statement that, uh, my, my doubt is that, that such statement we could really uh, call uh, yukti or, or, or reasoning or philosophical reasoning or uh, because it's just just uh, it's mahavakya it's, it's I mean some some proclamation of, of, of some some the of highest truth but uh, I don't see any any arguments any any you know so that's that's my question is what's your understanding of reasoning because if we if you call these passages uh, uh, philosophical reasoning then then you you broaden the the, the usual understanding of uh, of reasoning i think that's uh, so uh, could you elaborate more about yeah, well I, I would say like this you have basically two ways of looking at that functionality of reasoning a reasoning which is let us say um, constructive and elaborative of positive definitions theories and one which may be just an elimination of false conceptions. Upanishads falls in that category. Now, it is like that because of the nature of knowledge it seeks to reach to. It means there is nothing to be ascertained hmm. linguistically or nothing needed to be ascertained linguistically as far as the ultimate goal of the Upanishads is. All it has to be done is to remove a certain level of ignorance. Mm -hmm. And this can be done through rational means. Therefore, this reasoning cannot be universalized in the sense of being valid for everyone because you only remove errors in concrete situations. It means here it is a philosophy which starts when someone speaks about its own errors about reality. You cannot affirm the reality. You can only assess and deconstruct errors about reality. So the point and the starting point is someone's errors. And therefore the Upanishads, as reiteration and the commentaries, somewhat relate to pedagogical procedures. There is not someone who comes and sits and says, I'm going to speak about Atma. There is no speech about Atma. But there is speaking something about Atma when someone does not know or someone mistakens Atma for something else. Then starts the discourse. So in some sense, the beginning of philosophy is contextualized. So we don't have a universal philosophy in that sense, no? which is the one only which would aim to be uh, definitive, like uh, to say okay, what it is a book, what it is a, a table, and so on. For that purpose, okay, you could have a universal discourse and announce. Here, no. Here we are talking about something which does not need to be shown, which mm -hmm. is already there, but it needs, yes, to be deconstructed as far as the errors that are uh, 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 recurrently made about it. Therefore, uh, in though the method has a universal application, it is always local and specific. And the narrative which is constructed is always particular, is always uh, 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 specific of uh, certain, what we may call, modes of the error. It means I suffer in one way, you suffer in another way. Therefore, the discourse which corrects my suffering is different from the discourse which corrects your suffering. But there is an overall narrative of deconstruction. And it's systematic. It's a very important thing. It's systematic. Because I claim that somewhat the idea of uh, a discourse is important. It means it's not because one says that Atma cannot be spoken of 
that this uh, great uh, wise people remain in silence. <laughs> you speak about the Buddha, for example, he, didn't, he didn't never stop speaking. <laughs> so there is something to speak about that which is unspeakable. And that's the mystery of what it means, the Upanishads, and about what it means, a sutra, for example. I want to be quite sympathetic because if you are correct, certain aspects of my India have become very much easier. However, when I look at the Upanishads, and I'm a little concerned about talking about them in a unified way, Mm. because even singular Upanishads don't seem to have that kind of coherence. So that's one of also seems that you there's a, a leading of this into something or a drawing inspiration these commentators drawing inspiration out of and it's it's even if there's unity it's leaving out all of these ritual passages which are much more like the Vedas and kind of isolating these fragments of philosophy and drawing them together and you know sewing them together stitching them I think we cannot superimpose our subjective ways of looking at this uh, to decide whether this is or this is not Upanishads. So the starting point when I'm coming to study the Upanishads, uh, even without knowing what is the content of the Upanishads, I have already something given to me. Someone said it is Upanishads. And my question is, from where comes this? And for me, there is no other reason but a certain tradition. The tradition gave me certain category of texts that it is called Upanishads. I trusted it. Even if tomorrow I'm going to say there is a plurality of Upanishads, which may be contradictory because at one point of that I say, these Upanishads are plural, but why are you using one term for that? So the fact there is one term to speak about a plurality, <coughs> admittedly a plurality, is because there is something that you inherit from tradition which is present everywhere. And the presence of this is what defines the text to be or not to be an Upanishad. So you have a, a basic principle, just like you say, something is some text is 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 a drama, some text is a is a fiction, sometimes some text is a is a tragedy. It means you have some criteria to define, and therefore you have to have something to say. What is Upanishads? And the first reliance, I believe, is the tradition itself. And I would say that the basic definition with which all those dealing with Upanishads as a method of transformation. It's exactly this. The Upanishads are a way to overcome suffering. So there may, there may be other categories of, of traditions, of texts, like the sutras and the Buddhist tradition, which also are for that. But what I call the Upanishads have this thing across the plurality and of their differences. This that we are talking about is something meant 
to overcome suffering. And that would be the last test for the Upanishads. So, so when we speak about differences, uh, are we talking about this or are we talking about what in the West we may call doctrinal differences? So when you look at Upanishads and say, one speaks about duality, the other speaks about um, non-duality, one speaks about Ishvara, the other speaks about this. I mean, are we looking at, as in the West, we have perhaps even mistakenly, I think a very important author for us to, to, re, to rethink even Greek thinking about this is Pierre And instead of looking at individualities and authors, let us look at schools, for example, which is the Indian tradition. No? And perhaps you will find not so much differences, let us say, of approach between, for instance, Plato and Aristotle, which was practically, they can just, uh, let us say, uh, crystallized as a kind of ontological difference between uh, two, two positions. So I think what we first we have to do first is to try to look at the text uh, without necessarily having to uh, 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 consider that whatever doctrinal uh, idea or theory comes out of it will be the defining uh, 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 criterion to say this is or this is not an Upanishad. So I think sometimes when we speak about the plurality, we are speaking about this. We are speaking about what, in fact, in the West, we will learn to say, what is the philosophy of Plato? And then you give a name to it, and then you search for, and then you read in the Upanishads that there are Plato in Upanishads, there is Aristotle in Upanishads, and there is a plurality. I don't think these terms are congruent with the, uh, the philosophical, reflexive posture of the Upanishads themselves, where they are not meant to produce discourses of doctrines, but to remove uh, ignorance of the seekers in a structure which is fundamentally a dialogical structure because it involves, uh, let us say, masters and disciples. So if the criteria is transformation, you could admit that there are a plurality of discourses of transformation, <coughs> but all subsumed by the same basic principle and criterion which is enable one to transform. Then what does not enable one to transform, even if it has the uh, brand of uh, Upanishads, will not also be an Upanishad. Well, I'll send him to you.
Would you like a last sentence before we stop? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I prefer to leave it to you. Okay. Well, thank you so much for <laughs> an extremely rich paper. It's, a very, uh, it's given me a lot of food for thought. I thought of the Greek tradition too. We, this morning we were talking about um, Aristotle and Phronesis, and uh, Tarka seems to me quite close to that idea of a sort of practical wisdom. Um, uh, I'd like to talk to you more about, about your uh, Elysian of Tarka with uh, Shruti, but uh, uh, we'll leave it till next time now. So thank you so much for the first Shivasani lecture. Thank you. Thank you.